going to continue in John chapter uh, 21. If you have a Bible, you can open there. By the way, there's an insert in your bulletin with all kinds of other news that I couldn't cover, so make sure you look at that. Uh, If you're new here, there should be an outline in your bulletin. There are full text printed messages at both exits. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. There's, there are uh, printed messages in the back, and feel free to grab one now if you'd like. There are also um, all the printed and audio messages are on the church website for the last 23 years, so you can access them there. Short text this morning. Again, this is the aftermath of the resurrection. Jesus has met the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He fixed breakfast for them, invited them come and eat, um, which they have done. And now he takes Peter aside, and we read in verse 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Having served as a pastor now for over 38 years, I have seen many who serve the Lord But they do it for inadequate reasons. I mean, some of the reasons are noble, but they're really inadequate to sustain them over the the long haul. And so they sometimes burn out or drop out or whatever. Some of the people I'm referring to, I hate the term, but they're so-called laymen, by which I just mean they aren't in full-time ministry. They aren't supported by the ministry. But then others sometimes are full-time pastors or youth workers or or missionaries or whatever, but they're serving the Lord for what I would say are good but not adequate reasons. For example, sometimes people serve and you ask them why, and they'll say, well, I want to advance Christ's kingdom. Okay, that's a good reason, but it's not adequate, as I think I'll show you. Uh, some pastors, you say, why, why are you serving the Lord? Well, I love to study the Word, and I love to teach the Word accurately, and that is an absolutely vital function, and I love doing that, but that's not an adequate reason to serve the Lord. Well, other people, uh, they say, well, you know, I just love to help people with their problems. 
And again, that is a wonderful thing to do, but it's an inadequate reason to serve the Lord. Sometimes people serve because they say, well, it just gives me a sense of satisfaction when I see God use me. And that's right. I think we should have that sense of, thank you, Lord. What a, what a blessing to be used of you. But that's an inadequate reason to serve the Lord. Now, moving down to more carnal reasons that people serve the Lord. I have seen people serve the Lord Some of them because it makes them feel important when they help people and then those people uh, sing their praises afterwards. But as you can see readily, that's an inadequate reason to serve the Lord and even a wrong motivation because what if you don't get the applause you're looking for? Usually these people, they quit in frustration, they get hurt, feelings, sometimes leave the church. I've seen that happen. Uh, Sometimes people serve the Lord for carnal reasons because they like being the center of attention. Uh, That's obviously a wrong reason. Uh, Some pastors enjoy a feeling of power or maybe the importance of being in leadership and having everybody come to them for answers and all of that. Uh, The very worst, of course, are notoriously those who are in the ministry to get rich by fleecing the flock, or unfortunately there are men who are preying on women in the congregation. And that's been going on for centuries because Second Peter denounces that kind of man in the ministry. So it was going on from day one, and it's tragic, but it is still among us. Now, in our last study... As we looked at the disciples having breakfast with Jesus, I asked you the question, in whose life are you having a spiritual impact? In whose life are you having a spiritual impact? And I pointed out that every member of Christ's body, if you have received anything from Christ, salvation, growth, whatever, then he wants you to pass that on to impact someone else spiritually. But there's a deeper question beneath the question, are you serving Christ? And that is the question, why are you serving Christ? What is your motive? What drives you to do what you do in serving the Lord? And in our text, I believe the Lord drills home to Peter and to us, the very foundational motive that we all need, the right reason we need for serving him, and that is loving Jesus because he has graciously forgiven all your sins. That is the foundational motive for serving him. Now, behind that statement are the two great commandments. We are commanded to love God and to love one another. And Since Jesus is the eternal Son of God who gave himself on the cross for our sins, as we love him, then we love his people. We love those who are without Christ to share the gospel. And so those are the two great commandments embodied here. But um, the motive that should be central in your heart and my heart in whatever we do for the Lord is Jesus loved me and forgave me. And therefore, I love Jesus, and that's why I do what I do. And I'm suggesting if that is not your driving motive, at some point 
you're either going to burn out or you're going to blow out in frustration and anger, um, and you will not serve the Lord over the course of your life. Now, what we have here in this short exchange between Jesus and Peter is Peter's public restoration to ministry. Um, The Lord has already restored Peter privately. On the day Jesus arose, the women at the tomb saw the angel. And according to Mark 16, 7, the angel told the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he has told you. And I believe, and I have a whole sermon on that verse and those words, and Peter, and I believe that those two words, and Peter, would have rang out in Peter's ears as he is mourning his own failure of denying the Lord uh, just two nights before. And when the women said, here's what the angel said, go and tell the disciples and Peter, I, I imagine Peter saying, what? Did the angel say, and Peter? And Peter? And they said, yes, that's what he said. And that would have buoyed up Peter's depression, his, his sense of failure, and all of that. And then, in addition to that, that same day, Jesus met privately with Peter, and I believe he restored him on, in terms of his personal relationship with Jesus and said, Peter, I forgive you. And, and so things were already right between Jesus and Peter. We saw that when Peter jumps out of the boat and, and eagerly goes to the Lord when he hears it's Jesus standing on the shore in our last study. But now... I believe what's happening is the risen Lord is restoring Peter to his apostolic ministry in front of these other six disciples. Peter had denied the Lord three times. And so three times Jesus repeats this essential question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I believe these three questions hit Peter like repeated hammer blows to drive the point home. Three times, and the third time with grief, I think, because the third time reminded Peter especially, I denied him three times. Now three times he's asked me. But the third time with grief, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then three times the Lord responds with essentially the same answer. He says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. And so the point is that loving Jesus because he has forgiven even the worst of our sins through his grace on the cross, that's the driving force in serving him in whatever gifts he's given us. If I could paraphrase the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 and modify it slightly, the Apostle Paul there says, you might be the most, world's most eloquent speaker But if you don't have love, and I'm going to change it to this, if you don't love Jesus, you're just a gonging, gonging, uh, a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And Paul says, you might have impressive spiritual gifts, and you might have all theological knowledge, and you might have faith that can move mountains. But he says, if you don't love, and I'm going to add love Jesus, then it's worth nothing. 
And Paul says there, you might give away all your possessions and even give yourself to martyrdom. But if you don't love Jesus, it profits nothing. So love for Jesus is the essential motive in all that you do in serving him. And that's because loving Jesus is at the heart of a relationship with him. That's the first thing. Loving Jesus is at the heart of a relationship with him. And when Christ saves you, it's always personal. There is no blanket group plan of salvation. In John chapter 10 and verse 3, we saw that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. By name. And if Jesus has saved you, as you know, it's not because of anything in you, but as we read in the book of Revelation several times, it's because your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. In other words, or as Ephesians 1.4 says, in love God predestined you to adoption as sons or daughters uh, because of his great love. And so Jesus died on the cross with you in mind personally. He loved you and gave himself for you. And he desires your love in response to his great love for you. And so loving Jesus from the heart is the main thing to focus on in your relationship with him. It's the main thing. Do you love him? Do you love him? And I think Jesus' repeated question to Peter is a question to you and me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It reminds me of that rebuke the Lord gave to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. He said this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You go through that list. Man, they were doing well and a lot of good things. Uh, You know, they were working hard for the Lord, and they would have protested, Lord, look at all we're doing for you. We're serving you. And the Lord said, yeah, I see that. That's good. Thank you. But he said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And they would have said, but Lord, look at how sound our teaching is, our doctrine. Man, we're dealing with these false apostles. We're putting them out of the church. We're holding to the truth of your word. And that's absolutely essential because if we're following false doctrine, we may be buying into a false gospel that's no gospel at all. Or we might be following a false Jesus who's not the true Jesus. So, Sound doctrine is absolutely essential, and the Lord would have said, yes, I'm thankful for your sound doctrine, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Wow. And the Ephesians were persevering. That means they're enduring hardship for Jesus' sake. They're not turning aside. But the Lord said, I have this against you that you've left 
your first love. I think the Ephesians probably, like most good churches, could have added, but Lord, we're faithful in church attendance, and, and we're celebrating communion all the time, and Lord, we're, we're uh, giving generously to your cause, and the Lord would have said, yes, yes, thank you for all of that, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You see, first love for Jesus is essential in your relationship with him. Now, let me comment on a technical matter at this point, and it's one that you're probably familiar with. It's in the margin of most of our Bibles, and uh, some preachers make a lot out of it. But in this dialogue, there are two different Greek words for love. The first two times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses the Greek verb agapao, from which we get the noun agape. And Peter responds the first two times using the Greek verb phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, love of the brethren. Uh, The third time, Jesus uses phileo, and Peter responds with phileo, okay? Now, based on that, some argue agape is the higher form of love. Phileo is kind of a secondary level, And so the first two times Jesus asks for Peter's higher commitment, Peter comes in with a lowball answer. Third time Jesus comes down to his level. You've probably heard that teaching. Um, The problem with that teaching is sometimes the two words are used synonymously. And the other problem with it is some Greek scholars say phileo is the more noble word And agape is the secondary word. So these two views are mutually uh, negating each other. And there are other problems such as, well, they were speaking in Aramaic probably, not Greek. And so John is writing it in Greek. And um, uh, so there are several different problems uh, with that. In fact, Paul uses the word phileo in a very high way when he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, phileo the Lord, he is anathema. That means you're going to hell if you don't phileo Jesus. Not agape, but phileo. So he raises that word up pretty high. Uh, Based on that, we can say the following. Generally, not always, agape or agapao refers to God's love for people and our love for God. Phileo is used more commonly of love between people. Now, not always. Sometimes phileo is used even of Jesus' love for the Father. Uh, Agape has the notion generally of committed love that sacrifices itself for the well-being of another person. And so it is used of Christ's love for us. It is used of a husband's love for his wife. 1 Corinthians 13 uses it of love in the church, members one for another. Um, Having said that, John often loves to use synonyms just for stylistic variation And you can't really figure out why, except that he's just not repeating himself verbatim. In our current text, for example, he uses two different Greek words for know. 
he uses two different Greek words for feed, and he uses two different Greek words for sheep, and, of course, these two different Greek words for love. And so for that and many other reasons that I could have gone into, very, very few scholars would see any distinguishing meaning between the two uses of agape and phileo here. The vast majority of, of conservative scholars say it's just a stylistic variation. Now, our love for the Lord, of course, has to encompass the, the nuances of both Greek words. In other words, um, let me explain it like this. For over 41 years ago, I committed myself publicly to love Marla until death do us part. And that commitment you might compare to agapao. It's, it's a committed love where I agree I will sacrifice myself for her well-being. And that is the basis for us to develop a phileo relationship, a personal love relationship with one another that we've been working on over these 41 years. Um, our relationship is not built on feelings, and yet feelings are important in a marriage relationship. And if I never felt love for her, then something's seriously wrong with our relationship. But my point is, the relationship is built on commitment. And based on that commitment, we develop a close friendship, a close relationship, and even the romance is still there, I'm glad to report, after all these years. So it's that kind of thing. And the Bible uses the marriage relationship as a picture of Christ and the church. And so our love for him should be the same. And so don't wrangle about all these nuances of words and miss the main point. And that is loving Jesus from the heart. From the heart is the main thing to focus on in your relationship with him. And the reason I say from the heart is, you know, it's easy to say, oh, I love Jesus. And we have songs where we sing, I love Jesus. And that's good. But anybody can do that. God looks on the heart. And that's why Peter here, when he finally is grieved by Jesus' question, he says, Lord, you know all things. What's he implying? You know my heart. Look deep in my heart, Lord, and you know that I love you. And so that's where our love should come from. Sincere, genuine love from the heart for Jesus because he gave himself on the cross for us. Now that raises a question then. How do I develop and maintain genuine love for Jesus from the heart? And that we see is that loving Jesus from the heart, I've already mentioned this, it's the result of experiencing his abundant grace and love toward us on the cross. First time Peter ever encountered Jesus' power was when they had the miraculous catch of fish. And on that occasion, uh, Luke 5, 8, Peter fell down and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Go away from me. He, he sensed instantly Jesus is omnipotent and he is righteous and holy. And when you have that kind of light shining in your life, you see the darkness in yourself and you say, I am not worthy. Go away. 
On that occasion, though, Jesus didn't say, yeah, I'll leave. See you later. He graciously said to Peter, Luke 5.10, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. And then in John 142, uh, the first meeting of Peter with Jesus in John's gospel, Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And then John adds, which is translated Peter. And both Cephas in Aramaic and Peter in Greek mean rock. And so by God's grace, Simon, the sinful man, became Cephas or Peter, the rock. And so the point is this. Peter experienced God's grace when he first met Jesus. He knew he was a sinner, and instead of judgment, he found mercy. And he experiences God's grace again here. And I think in our text, Jesus underscores his grace by calling Peter by his original name. He's saying, Simon, son of John, and Peter's going, yeah, that's what I used to be. Yeah, that's who I was when Jesus called me, all right. Simon, son of John. And in the upper room, you'll remember, Peter had boasted, oh, Lord, even if these other guys deny you, not old rock, not Peter. And Jesus, I think, is gently rebuking Peter and pointing out to him his boast when he asks here in verse 15, do you love me more than these? Now, everybody had abandoned Jesus on the night he was betrayed, but Peter went further in abandoning him when he denied him three times in front of that little servant girl and the others around the fire. And I think that uh, the Lord here rather than removing Peter from apostolic office, is showing his grace by saying, Peter, you sin big time, but I restore you even more. It's grace. And so he entrusts to him the care of his sheep. And so Peter painfully knew of his own sinfulness and his failure, but he also knew of God's grace. And, you know, coming to Jesus... When you come to Jesus as a guilty sinner, and instead of the judgment and condemnation you deserve, he says, I forgive you. That's grace. That's grace. And and that's the source of why you love Jesus. Remember that sinful woman in Luke 7? Here's Jesus dining with a Pharisee. Picture the scene. You know, these Pharisees, they were really the goody-two-shoes guys. I mean, you know, they, they had it all together outwardly. And so they're having this proper dinner, and in from the streets comes a notorious woman, probably a prostitute, and she begins weeping and anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and his, some ointment that she pours on him. And Simon is horrified. He says, this man must not be a prophet. Or he'd know what sort of woman this is who's touching him. You know, he's just repulsed by it. And, And Jesus points out that this woman has been forgiven much. And so she loves much. 
And you see, the problem with Simon wasn't that he had just a little to be forgiven of because we've all sinned flagrantly. We've all sinned repeatedly. We've all sinned when we knew what we were doing and knew better, but we sinned anyway. So we are all great sinners. The problem is some people like Simon the Pharisee think they're a notch above the really outwardly bad sinners. See, they don't judge their heart before God. They judge outwardly. And the point of Jesus' rebuke to Simon was, if you only knew your heart, Simon, you would see how much you have to be forgiven and you would love me much. But this woman, she knows. She knows. And so she's been forgiven much and she loves much. You see, when God, through his word, And through his spirit opens your eyes to see how black your heart really is. Even if you, like me, you've been raised in the church. And you see, oh no, if God had not been gracious, I could be out doing the worst of sins. Then you love Jesus much. Because you see the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So it's seeing his grace, seeing your sin, seeing his love that spanned the gulf. That's the motivation for why you love Jesus. That's how to keep the the fire burning. Just think often on, oh, where would I be without Christ? And what did he do for me? All by his grace. Then you'll love Jesus much. There's one other thing here, and that is loving Jesus requires that we be restored when we've sinned against him. It's interesting. Peter had denied the Lord by a charcoal fire, and here, by a charcoal fire, Jesus restores him. And the interesting thing is, the noun for charcoal fire is used two times in the New Testament. One for the fire where he denied him, one for the fire where he's restored Also, Peter three times openly had denied Jesus before others. So three times Jesus has Peter confess him openly before others. Peter had boasted that he was a notch above the other disciples in his commitment. So Jesus, by saying, do you love me more than these, brings that out. And Peter is humbled now. And he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than these, but rather he just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so looking back on your sin is always a humbling experience, but it's necessary to be restored. And and the Lord, I know, knew that his question would cause Peter grief, but he asked it anyway, because we need to grieve over our sins, because our sins grieve the Lord. And you, you have to grieve over them because no one is fit to serve the Lord who just shrugs off sin is no big deal. You, you have to realize, oh, wow, my sin was serious. And I, it grieved the Lord. And I believe that's why Jesus in Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, and so we have to, when we sin, Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to any we've sinned against. 
and appropriate his cleansing, but feel the grief that our sin causes him. So the Lord restores us to our relationship so that we love him, but it's not just for our love for the Lord. He restores us, as our text shows, so that we'll serve him out of love for him. And so if you love Jesus, the point is serve him by feeding his sheep. As I mentioned last time, if your cup is full to the brim and you get around somebody, it's going to spill. And so make sure your cup is full of the love of Jesus up to the brim and then get around people and slop it over on them. That's ministry. And so three times Peter drives home, I mean, Jesus drives home to Peter. If you love me, serve me, serve me, tender shepherd, my sheep. Three or four things we learn here. First of all, Jesus has a flock and those who love him, he wants them to feed and shepherd his flock. The word tend in the New American Standard Bible means to feed a flock Shepherd is more comprehensive. It includes feeding, but also leading, guiding, protecting, guarding the sheep. Uh, The word shepherd, or that means pastor, so pastors are shepherds. And that word is used interchangeably in the New Testament with elder and overseer, the offices in a local church. I think Peter later reflects the Lord's charge to him here in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, when he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Notice the humility in that. Peter doesn't say, as the great apostle Peter. He says, "Just I'm one of your fellow elders. Here's what I exhort you. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So shepherding the Lord's flock is primarily the duty of elders in each local church. In Acts 20, 28, Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I think some of you men should aspire or desire the office of overseer. And the reason you should is because you love Jesus, because he redeemed you from all your sins. And because you love Jesus, you want to shepherd his flock. Now, let me clarify. I don't think we should make a man an elder who isn't already shepherding. You don't take the office and then start doing it. You start doing it, and then the church recognizes there's a shepherd. Look at how he's shepherding the flock. And we recognize the Holy Spirit has made him a shepherd, an elder over the flock. And so I don't like the voting language. You know, we're going to vote for elders. That sounds like an American election. And the church is not like that, politics and all. No, rather, in the spirit, we discern there's a shepherd. Look at that man. And the ministry he's having in our midst. Yes, we affirm here's a shepherd. That's why we should 
have elders appointed by the Holy Spirit. The main job of a pastor, at least one who is supported in the work, should be uh, to work hard at preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 says some of the elders should be supported so that they can do that job, and a pastor should feed God's flock from his word. Paul says in Titus 1.9 that the elders must be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Again, the teaching role. Sheep are vulnerable to to attacks, and there are many false teachers, and so on. And so uh, a pastor who isn't feeding the flock from the Word isn't doing his job. A second thing we learn here is that Jesus' sheep belong to him, and they are precious to him because he gave his life for them. Three times Jesus uses the possessive pronoun to refer to the church. He says, my lambs, my sheep, my sheep. In other words, no pastor can say, that's my flock, exclusively. No, I'm an under-shepherd. It's Jesus' flock. He owns it. He paid for it with his blood. And I'm just an under-shepherd trying to, to do it for him. And uh, I should be diligent, and so should all the elders, to care for each and every member, because everyone that Christ died for is precious to our Savior. And you know, this applies to you in this way. It really bothers me when I hear Christians who despise or put down other Christians. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, I know, sometimes... The sheep can be obnoxious, okay? I know that. And sometimes the sheep can be stubborn and self-centered and very difficult to be around. I know that. But before you go around bad-mouthing them, just remember how you were when the Lord saved you. And remember, He saved them. And yeah, they may need to grow, but they're His sheep. And he loved them enough to die for them and to save them. And so I got to love them too. Sometimes that's hard. Yes. But we got to do that. Now you may be thinking, well, thankfully that's your job. You're the pastor, but I'm not called to that. Well, not so fast. Third thing here is that Jesus wants every believer to feed and shepherd his sheep. Now, granted, it's the main job of the elders and the pastors to shepherd the flock. But I'll be honest, we cannot do it adequately ourselves. we got to have your help. And all of the one another passages in the New Testament show, if you know Christ, you're on. If you're further along in the Lord than someone else, then help shepherd them. You may need to teach them how to have a quiet time. You may need to show them how they can overcome a persistent sin in their life. You may need to help equip them for evangelism. You may need to show them how to pray. You may need to to teach them all sorts of things about the the Christian life. Um, But if you're older in the Lord, then that's your job. Husbands, you're a shepherd of your family. Mothers, you're a shepherd of your kids. Teach them about Jesus and how they can know him and grow in him. And... uh, You have something to contribute to someone. 
if you know the Lord. Sometimes young believers are oblivious to spiritual danger. And you've been around the block a time or two. You can say, wait a minute, don't go there. Be careful of that. That kind of thing. It's really interesting to me. Remember the story of the garrison demoniac? I mean, this guy was a case. If you met him on the street today, you would run in fear. He's naked. He lives in the tombs. He cries out day and night. He gashes himself with stones. He breaks chains that they bind him with. I mean, this guy was a fearful kind of a guy to be around. And Jesus delivers him. And then the guy has a request. Lord, can I go with you? Can I follow you? Now, he's a brand new believer. And I would think the Lord would say, yeah, yeah, come along. We'll teach you how to do this. You know what the Lord said to him? It's in Luke 8, 39. Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And then Luke, in a not very subtle affirmation of Jesus' deity, says, so he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city, notice what great things Jesus had done for him. God and Jesus are tantamount equal in that verse. But the point is, if you love Jesus because he's changed your life, then you have a ministry. You can contribute something to someone else, even if you're the garrison demoniac and you just got saved. All right, go and tell them what great things God has done for you. And then finally, love for Jesus is the foundation for serving his sheep. And I just say that. You should love the sheep because Jesus loves them and gave his life for them. But as I said, sometimes the sheep aren't all that lovable. And so what I'm saying here is it's your love for Jesus, not for the sheep, that has to be primary. You're serving them because you love Jesus, because he first loved you and gave himself on the cross for you. And that will sustain you When you got to minister to difficult sheep. Uh, Years ago, I heard of a pastor who said, you know, I'm not really a shepherd. I'm a sheepdog. He said, I'm a sheepdog. And if you've ever watched a sheepdog, usually they're border collies. They go around barking at the sheep that are straying off toward the cliff, you know. Get back in line, you know. And and they help the shepherd. And this guy said... You know, sheepdog don't get a whole lot from the sheep. You know, they get hassles and they get manure. And uh, not a whole lot of else stuff that the sheep give the sheepdog. Why do the sheepdog work? They want a pat on the head from the shepherd, maybe a doggy biscuit to say, good job, boy. Good job, boy. And he said, that's why you serve the sheep. You're a sheepdog and you're serving the master, the shepherd, the good shepherd. And so... The Lord here, if he saved you, he asked this question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And if you say, yes, Lord, you know my weakness, but you know I love you. Then he says, tend my lambs. And you know, one of the main reasons that I felt called to be a pastor many, many years ago I just couldn't shake the implications of one verse, Ephesians 5.25, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
And I thought, you know, if Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her and I love Christ, then I got to love his church and I need to give myself up for his church. And so that's what kept me going. I'll be honest with you. There's hardly a week goes by that I don't feel overwhelmed with inadequacy and in what I'm doing to the point I think, how else could I make a living? I wonder what else I could do because this isn't going very well. And I just feel like, what in the world am I doing? I'm in the deep end and I feel just, you know, I, I don't feel very adequate. And what keeps me going is this. Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me and he loves his church and he gave himself for his church. And so I got to love his church and give myself for his church. Now, I know not everybody's called to be a pastor, but I believe that these questions Jesus asked Peter apply to each and every one of you. And I keep repeating them this morning because Jesus kept repeating them to Peter and I want you to go away and think about it. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And if you say, yes, Lord, you know I love you. In spite of my failures, Lord, I love you. Then three times Jesus says, then tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Lord, I pray that no one here would walk away not having experienced your love at the cross. It is such a life-transforming love. We were lost. We were in rebellion. We were thumbing our nose at you. And you interposed your precious blood to redeem us from all our sins. And you offer salvation to the chief of sinners simply by grace through faith. And if anybody's here, Lord, who's never received that grace and love, I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see it, that they would respond to Jesus today and know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. And I pray, Lord, if any of your saints, that their love has grown cold, that they would come back to their first love for you, that that would be our motive and why we serve you, and that all of us, out of love for you, would be serving you, tending your sheep, that your church here might be a glory to your name, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to run a minute over.